Our scripture reading is from James chapter 4. We're only preaching on the first two verses of this very famous text, but it's so powerful we want to read through verse 12. So hear the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in the shadow of this baby dedication, we're reminded how precious it is to call you Father, that you are, for those who trust in Christ, you are our Father, and we are your children. We bless you because you're God. You alone are God. There's no one else like you. You alone created all things, and you, through your Son, Jesus, hold all things together. Father, we are amazed that every molecule in the universe is precisely where you sovereignly place it, and it moves only when and where you will it to be. God, we are blessed to know that you call by name each one of the billions of stars in each one of the billions of galaxies, and you direct them in their cosmic courses. You are infinite, you are eternal, you are the ancient of days, and we bow before you. You are the great redeemer. You alone can forgive sin because every sin is ultimately a treasonous violation against you, against your word, against your law, against your holiness. And we thank you that for those who trust in your Son, you have purchased our redemption. Thank you that you liberated us from the oppressive tyranny of sin at the cost of the precious blood of Jesus on Calvary's cross. And as we sit here this morning, we acknowledge that he, Jesus, is our only hope, our constant comfort, and our enduring encouragement. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who brings us into fellowship with Jesus and leads us into all truth. We confess to you that obeying you is far more of a struggle than we would like to admit because we're a prideful people 
and we're prone to wander from your good and perfect and acceptable will for us. We know in our heads that obedience to you will always bring ultimate joy and ultimate satisfaction, but in our sinful arrogance, we too often ignore the truth and take out on our own until we finally sink in the quicksand of our sin and are humbled by our foolishness. Thank you that you, purely out of your grace and mercy, are faithful to draw us back to you. You keep us. You protect us. You do not reward us according to our iniquities. We're grateful that your fatherly discipline of us is rooted in your love and not your wrath. We thank you that those who genuinely belong to you through Jesus will never taste your wrath, only your amazing grace and your enduring patience. God, we thank you for this church, this assembly of believers here. We're grateful for your grace to us, for your hand that rests on the ministries and on the finances. And God, we just want to say to you and you alone, go all the honor and glory for the fruit that you are producing here. Apart from you and, and your undeserved grace, we know that we would know nothing but struggle, defeat, division, and discouragement. And so we thank you for strengthening us as your family here. Cause our love for one another to increase even more so that our mutual love would proclaim your love and mercy to a lost world. God, they're spiritual orphans. They don't have a spiritual father. They have no spiritual family. God, would you empower us to clearly speak and live the life-changing truths of the gospel? Father, we pray for our church family this morning. We pray for those who've been sick or who've had procedures or treatments or surgeries and are in need of continued healing. God, we pray for Mark Henson as he struggles with cancer and for Joe and Nellie Paris as Joe faces significant health challenges. God, as we come to your word, we pray that you would please help your servant this morning. Only words that come from you can penetrate our hearts. Only your truth can renew our mind and transform our lives in the life of this church. And so we ask that you would do miracles of spiritual transformation in us today through your word. We need that, God. Work through your word in such a way so that it would not occur to us to give thanks or credit to anybody but you. We pray that you do all of this for Jesus' sake. And in his name we pray. Amen. This morning, we continue our brief series of messages. This is number two in this series of what the Bible teaches about how we're to handle and resolve conflict, mainly interpersonal conflict we're talking about. This has been called by people like Ken Sandy. You'll hear his ghost through this if you're familiar with him. It's called, been called biblical peacemaking, and as we saw last week, this issue of biblical peacemaking is very important to our spiritual health, both corporately and individually. We saw that learning to resolve conflict biblically is just not an option for believers in Jesus. The New Testament has an awful lot to say on this topic in particular. The main reason, of course, for the importance of how we handle conflict is ultimately because how we handle conflict can either bring great honor to Jesus or great dishonor upon him. On a practical level, very few things in our lives are a more accurate measure of our love for Christ 
than how we respond when someone lashes out against us or hurts us or disappoints us. In Acts chapter 9, when Jesus meets Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, he makes it clear that Saul, because he'd been persecuting Christians, had been persecuting him. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That means that how we treat one another is how we treat Jesus. How we relate to the church is how we relate to Jesus. And that makes how we handle conflict in the church a matter of infinite importance. Because how we handle conflict is a good barometer of how we're loving Jesus, that means that conflict can be a helpful and redemptive tool for believers spiritually. As strange as that may seem, it really can be a very good thing. This is because the way we engage in conflict can and often does expose areas of pride and other sins in our hearts that might otherwise go unnoticed. We were also reminded last week, as it relates to conflict, that the default mode of the majority of the people in at least this part of the country, this upper northwest area, upper midwest, the, up, the default mode of handling conflict in our particular world, with some exceptions, is to passionately avoid it. It's comparatively rare in our area code to hear a believer say, you know, I don't feel threatened by conflict at all. Mixing it up with those who disagree with me, it's good for me. It sharpens my walk with God. I have never heard anybody say that in this part of the country. That sentiment is more prevalent perhaps in other parts of the country where conflict is more open, transparent. We also saw that learning to biblically respond to conflict is important because Jesus calls his followers to be peacemakers. We saw from Jesus that when we strive after interpersonal peace in the church, we're showing the world what our heavenly father looks like. It's in Matthew 5. It's also important to be a biblical peacemaker because conflict is unavoidable in this world. And because when conflict is managed with love and patience and honesty, forthrightness, that's a powerful witness to the power of God in a Christian's life or in a church's life. Also, being a peacemaker in the face of conflict is important because our spiritual enemy, Satan, is constantly at work to bring division to the church. Finally, rightly handling conflict is important because Christian discipleship, without which no one grows to spiritual maturity, is a process that absolutely implies the presence of conflict or confrontation. Discipleship involves speaking truth to one another. Ephesians 4.15, and we all know that the truth can sometimes be painful. Discipleship is sharpening one another as iron sharpens iron. That's a big part of discipleship, and that implies some level of accountability and confrontation that most believers don't relish, and yet it's essential. That was last week. This morning, we want to move further into this topic of living as a peacemaker by answering three of the big questions at the heart of peacemaking. Lord willing, we'll look at more of the nuanced uh, issues related to peacemaking later on in the series. But today, we want to survey the large foundation stones on which to construct a church culture where peacemaking is part of the DNA. That's what we're looking at today. And the first of the three questions is, what is at the heart 
biblically speaking, of our conflicts. Second, because motive is so vitally important in everything we do, what should be our main motive? What should be our main goal in resolving conflict? And the third question is very practical, and that is simply, how do we judge what is worthy of engaging in confrontation and potential conflict? How do we know when it's worth talking about? The first big question, which is the most basic of these foundational questions, is what is at the heart, biblically defined, biblically speaking, of our conflicts? On the surface, conflicts can have a whole lot of secondary causes. There can be misunderstanding, competition for limited resources, personality differences can contribute to conflict. But the Bible teaches that there is really one ultimate source or cause of significant conflict, and it's revealed in the text we just read in James chapter 4. James asks this very question about conflict in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In the second half of verse 1, he gives his spirit-inspired answer to that question. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, that's probably not the answer that most people would give to the question, what causes conflict? For many people, they would look outside of themselves to find the source. James goes right to our own hearts, and he reveals two important truths in verse 1. First, the main cause of our conflict is internal. It's inside ourselves. Again, this is a revelation to some people, and even to some people who claim to be Christians. You get into conflict with someone who seemingly out of nowhere throws the first verbal punch, a painful argument ensues, voices are raised, relationships are crippled. Someone later asks you what caused that conflict, and you say, he started it. This is all on him. I was just minding my own business. There you have it. You have met the problem, and it is him. That may be at least partially true on a human level, but... That doesn't agree with what James says here. James says it was your internal passions and your desires that caused you to return fire in ways that helped damage the relationship. This suggestion of looking into our own hearts for the cause of our quarrels is not original with James. He's giving one concrete application of a broader application or broader principle that Jesus establishes in Matthew 15:19 when he's talking about the source of all of our sin. The Jewish religious leaders had come up to Jesus and they were accusing his disciples of defiling themselves because they weren't practicing an elaborate hand-washing ritual that they had mandated as part of the law. Jesus explains what true defilement is and where it comes from and says in verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. That means that all sin, including our sinful responses to somebody else's sin, is rooted not in the other person, not external, it's in our own hearts. For instance, another example of this outside of this issue of anger, a man might blame a woman who is dressed immodestly for his sexual lusting after her. And even though immodesty is sinful, Jesus is saying by application that the root cause of this man's sin is not the immodesty of the woman, it's his own lust-filled heart. A woman's immodesty does not create sexual lust in a man. Immodesty simply teases out 
the already existing sexual lust in the man's heart. Likewise, if you respond in rage to someone in response to their violent outburst against you, their aggressive speech did not create the sin of your rage. Your sinful rage was in your heart all along. You just didn't realize it because it was undisturbed. The other person's anger simply triggered or awakened the rage that was already in your heart. Do we believe this? This is what Jesus, this is what James teach us, but many believers live as if they don't believe this. They feel justified in going off on someone who had first gone off on them. That is not the teaching of Scripture, and understanding and internalizing this truth is foundational to making progress in this area of being a peacemaker. If someone sinfully confronts you, and you're under the control of the Holy Spirit, and not responding out of your internal resident anger, you'd be responding something more like this. You know, I think it might be best if you and I would maybe sit down and just cool down for a bit so that we're not talking when we're so upset about this matter. In most cases, not all, delaying a potentially heated discussion can be a good peacemaking response when you're confronted by someone who is enraged with you. When someone attacks us, although our fallen impulse is to respond in kind, that's not the Holy Spirit response. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Entreat, that means, oh, so you just called me a so-and-so and say, could you explain to me what is it that makes you think that? That's the response of a spirit-filled person. Okay, 1 Peter 3.9, Peter commands, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. When we're personally attacked or reviled, the Christian response is not to return fire, but to seek to bless the person who attacked us. Jesus and James reveal when, when we respond in anger, that exposes something internally wrong in our hearts. There are unchecked passions that are at war within us. Do we believe that? I really believe it. Seeking to bless our attacker in some ways, or at least cool off until things can be more reasonable, is not a weakness, whatever our conflict-loving culture tells us. This is just what a peacemaker does in these kind of situations. Another truth we see from James is that not only is the main cause of our conflict internal, but also these internal passions within us can be very strong. James deliberately uses a powerful metaphor to describe these internal passions within us. He says there's a war going on inside of us. There are passions that are at war within us. And his point is to convey that these passions are raw, they're visceral, they're, they're inflamed, and they require an immediate and dramatic Holy Spirit-empowered ceasefire to be, called, to, be, to be tempered so that we're not triggering. When we see this same metaphor of war, we see it in other places like 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war 
against your soul. Again, Peter could have used a less dramatic metaphor than war. He could have said, uh, the passions of your flesh are in opposition to your soul. Instead, he says, they're at war with your soul. That means that we shouldn't be surprised when we feel the intense emotional power of these passions rising up within us. After revealing that the cause of our conflict is this powerful inner desires that are at war within us, James explains further how this works in verse 2. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. James explains that the source of our conflict is our frustrated or unmet desires. We desire or covet, we cannot have or obtain. He says that when those feelings rise unchecked within us, we murder or we fight and quarrel. Now, whenever the word that's loaded like murder is used, it raises obviously some questions. It seems hard to believe that James would simply just mention in passing murder, as if that were just one more detail. It seems that if it, there were people that were murdering one another in the church, that would maybe merit just a few more words. Probably what's going on here is James is using murder metaphorically, and Jesus paves the way for him to think about murder that way. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, when in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus essentially defines hatred as murder of the heart. He says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire, the hell of fire. That's probably what James is thinking about here, because his entire letter is influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. However, he's probably also warning us, even believers, that if our internal desires are allowed to reach their full potential for evil, that can result in murder. Whatever the case, Jesus' words here are very important part of this discussion about conflict because they remind us that though we may believe that interpersonal anger and insult are fairly low on the list of severity, that's not where Jesus places it. He says that expressing unchecked, unrighteous anger with a brother is a capital spiritual offense worthy of judgment. How different that standard is from the one in this world. You can't spend any time on social media today without seeing words like idiot or far worse used for those who are, for whatever reason, not towing the party line in some way. So Jesus' words here are an important reminder of just how serious he sees this kind of anger, especially toward a brother or sister, to be. This is murder of the heart. So much for words like sticks and stones that don't hurt anybody. So James is saying that the main cause of conflict is our frustrated desires. The question is, what does this look like manifest in a fellowship where hearts are filled to the brim with frustrated desires? Desire for what? Well, there's lots of things we could say, but probably the most, the most frustrating desire in the church is a desire for authority and power. I had a good friend who used to say, people don't fight in church over decisions. Church people fight over who gets to make the decisions. You know? Well, as a church with a congregational polity, we believe the Bible teaches that all the major 
potentially course-altering decisions, they're made by the congregation. The congregation gets to determine how we spend our money, or who gets to be on the pastoral staff, or an elder, or other major decisions. Those decisions are made publicly, not behind closed doors. That way of making major decisions can potentially decrease this source of possible frustration. But those that have been in this tradition for any length of time knows that it does not in any way eliminate it, and sometimes it just brings it out of the closet. Tragically, the history of the church reveals the church is often split not over major decisions, but over minor things. In my last church, we had a major conflict that took months to resolve and damaged many relationships when, to make room for the growing number of people who were attending the church, the church board decided to rope off the last two pews to make room for visitors. Made perfect sense. But the leadership had no idea that one of those pews had become the personal property (laughs) of a prominent family in the church. And we were accused of preventing them from being able to worship God because they could worship God only in that last pew. I wish I were making this up. We had multiple budget battles over the funding for the church softball team. Of course, who wouldn't fight about that? On one occasion, several prominent members left the church, and for them, the tipping point was reached when we wouldn't allow a first-grade boy to join with the fourth-grade class because his uncle was the fourth-grade teacher. People became hopping mad over those kinds of conflicts because their desires were frustrated. And that's only a sample. My assumption is that some of you that have been around North Shore for a while could name some similarly ridiculous conflicts here. James says the cause of all of those conflicts is the same. We have desires in our heart that are very strong, and when they are frustrated, we get angry, and we spoil for a fight. We saw from Ephesians that from a theological perspective, these kinds of covetous desires are actually spiritual idols of the heart. Paul says in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. There's that word again, covetous. This tells us that from a spiritual perspective, the reason those people had a hissy fit over having to leave their beloved church pew is because for them sitting in that pew that they coveted as their exclusive domain had become an idol. For that matter, so was the church softball team to some of the people, and the desire of the parents and all of those who sided with them for that little boy to be in his uncle's class. For us to call these kinds of things idols when it comes to our frustrated desires may seem like it's kind of a foolish way of putting it, but when you think about it and break it down, it actually is quite accurate. A person's willing to sin against a fellow believer by blowing up all over them, for instance, over where they sit. That means that where they sit, or whatever it is, is more important than a brother who is in union with Christ and therefore one with Christ. That means that where they sat was more important to these people than Jesus, who is one with this brother that they had blown up all over. We can make idols out of anything. 
Anything or anyone we hold more dear than Jesus or someone united with Jesus is by definition an idol. So we know from James that all of these frustrated desires that war within our hearts that are often idolatrous, that's the main cause of our conflict. The second major question about peacemaking we want to look into this morning is what should be our main motive or our main goal in resolving our conflicts? Now, Ken Sandy in his writings on peacemaking reminds us that we shouldn't overthink this question because our main motive in biblically resolving conflict is also the, the motive that we should have for everything we do. 1 Corinthians 10 31, Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Glory of God. Just as we eat and drink and do whatever else we do for the glory of God, our ultimate motive, our ultimate goal for resolving conflict biblically should be for the glory of God. Now that doesn't mean that it's wrong to want to resolve conflict so that peace can be restored to our relationships or to alleviate the anxiety that broken relationships bring into our lives. But those are secondary. As believers, our highest goal in all things should always be that God would be glorified, that he would be seen as supreme, that his name, that his fame would be primary, the primary motivator when we're embattled in unresolved conflict. Having his glory as the ultimate goal of our conflicts is not only theologically correct, it also brings us our highest joy. And finally, it's also practically very helpful in providing direction to us in our conflicts as we keep our focus on the glory of God. And the reason it's so helpful is because whenever we have conflict, that tends to pull us into a very self-centered orbit where the focus is not about God, it's about me. It's about what I want, my desires. And one of the biggest sinful desires that war within us is the desire to be right. We had a, a peacemaking person come from Ken Sandy's organization, and I remember he said, he said, Christians are never more dangerous than when they're right. This is because when we're sure we're right about something, that opens wide the door to self-righteousness. If you and I are having a disagreement and I am certain that I am right, I will not be open to anything ha you have to say because you are wrong. <laughs> I'll be tempted to look down my nose at you because after all, you clearly are not very bright for not being able to see how right I am and how wrong you are. You should be able to see that I would, of course, be right about this. I am right. You are wrong. There's no further need to discuss this. The issue is settled. Next subject. Okay, we're not that crass, but that's kind of the spirit, right? <laughs> kind of where it is. It's very difficult to remain humble when you're certain you're right, and yet we're called to remain humble every moment of our lives. But if the goal is not to get the right answer or discover who is right, or to put it another way, if the goal is not to win the argument, if the goal is instead that God would be made to look great in our disagreement, that can totally drain away all of our self-centeredness. That's manifest when our goal is being right or winning the argument or proving that I'm a better Christian than you are. Paul says it's not about that. It's about bringing glory to God, and that means that following his values, his priority, and his agenda is what's most important, not being right or winning the argument. 
If believers would consistently apply this one truth to our conflicts, then the disagreements in our marriage, in our family, and in church would look radically different. If when it becomes clear that we're embarking on a discussion that could potentially be heated, we would pause right there and pray, Father, help us to discuss this in a manner that will make Jesus look great. If we would do that, it would radically transform the course of the discussion. One thing that brings him glory, of course, is when we value what he values. And in the case of conflict, when we value what is best for the relationship more than being right or winning the argument. What brings glory to God is in the midst of our discussion, in the midst of our disagreement, we place the priority on expressing love and kindness and gentleness to one another. When believers do that, that makes God look very big because we're allowing his values and his priorities to guide the discussion, not our own, like I'm right and you're wrong. It's important to clarify that even when two believers are in a disagreement and they're both seeking God's glory, they still may not agree, even after prayer and discussion. Paul and Barnabas never came to an agreement about John Mark, and they didn't handle it very well. But two people who are genuinely seeking to glorify God in the midst of a conflict will never lose the relationship. They will perhaps come out on the other side of the conflict agreeing to disagree, but the relationship will be maintained, and more importantly, God will be glorified in their efforts as peacemakers. In a fallen world where we all have blind spots and incomplete information, sometimes agreeing to disagree is just the best we can do. But in conflict, as in all things in the life of the believer, our goal should be that God would be glorified, and when that happens, peace can reign in our relationships. A third and final foundational question is, how do we know what's worth engaging in a conflict? How do we know what to argue about? We all know that all disagreements are not the same, and that some disagreements are not worth fussing about. Proverbs 19.11 goes even further than that and says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is his glory to overlook an offense. It honors our reputation when being met with a potential disagreement with others, we choose to overlook it. Now, we must be careful here because the Proverbs is not in any way saying that we must overlook all conflict and that all, overlooking all conflict is virtuous. We know instinctively that some conflicts have to be worked out. It's cowardly, not loving, to overlook some offenses. So this is not a call to overlook all uh, conflicts. This does, however, give us freedom to overlook some offenses, and frequently that's appropriate. We rightly assume that people who can never overlook any perceived offense have some sort of social disorder. This is not a Christian way of relating to anyone, especially those in the church. One advantage to living in a culture where avoiding conflict is our first impulse, and here we are, one of the advantages to being in that culture is it tends to make it easier for us to overlook offenses because that's what we want to do with all the offenses. Conversely, the weakness, of course, in this tendency to avoid conflict is to avoid conflicts that we should be having. The question, of course, is how do we know when to overlook an offense? 
Well, there's no list in the Bible of topics you should always openly disagree about. It's not here. And because there isn't any kind of inspired list like that, then the Spirit of God will guide us. If someone says or does something to you that feels offensive, but you aren't sure whether to confront, ask the Spirit to help you, and he will. The way that he most commonly directs believers is not with some sort of word. It's in a very common sense way. That is, if you find yourself easily forgetting the offense in a few days, you feel no residual anger or bitterness, that's probably the Spirit's confirmation. Overlooking, it's the right thing to do. If, however, you've tried diligently to forget the offense and you can't get past it. If you find yourself not being able to get over your anger or feelings of bitterness toward the one who offended you, that may very well be the Holy Spirit's way of revealing that you need to sit down and talk things over. Sometimes there seems to be no rhyme or reason as to when you can or cannot let something go. I should be able to let this go. A person does something to you that feels a bit more serious, and you seem to be able to easily forget that one. But another person does something to you that's comparatively insignificant, at least it feels that way, but you can't shake your anger, your feelings of hurt. And so you find yourself starting to avoid those people, keep them at arm lengths, because you're not reconciled with them. Your relationship does not honor God. Why would there be such a variance in how you feel about a perceived wrong? Well, there can be a lot of answers to that question, but one is sometimes the reason we cannot shake our feelings of hurt, can't get past that, is because we need to confront, not for our sake, but for their sake, because God wants to do a work in that person's life. You might not know, of course, God always knows, that that particular sin against you, that's habitual with them. And they've been warned before and they haven't got it, and so they need someone to rightly confront them about this for their sanctification. That may be the reason you can't get past it, because they need to hear from you about it. Whatever the case, our job is to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. When we can overlook an offense, and it's biblically warranted, the proverb says, overlook it and honor your reputation. But when the Spirit will not allow you to find that kind of peace over something, that's God's leading for you to confront in ways that are in line with Scripture. We'll look into what that kind of conflict looks like later on. For now, may God give us the grace to, number one, clearly see the idols of our heart and repent of them. Two, seek the Spirit's power to calm our warring passions. And three, to know when to confront and when not to confront. And may we do all of this for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful that the Word of God has the deepest theological truths about you, your glorious, infinite attributes, but it also has so much wisdom on things like how do we get along in a world where there's conflict. God, I'm just so grateful, and I pray for myself, I pray for all of us, that you would help us to take to heart, that your spirit would be working in us, drawing us. God, we don't want to just fill our head with theological knowledge. What good does that do? Father, we want our minds to be renewed and our hearts to be transformed, and that would be manifest in fruit of repentance. God, show us what that looks like today. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Well, please.